the fifth chapter of John. We just finished looking at the miracle that the Lord done uh, at the pool of Bethesda, the lame man that had been there, and 38 years, I believe, was the number. Yeah, 30 and 8 years. And the Lord said, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. So uh, uh, the evidence of the need for the, the working of God with the call of God in order for a man to be saved. You know, for, uh, for a lame man to get up, man's voice saying, well, just get up, that, that doesn't work. There had to be a power that was there working in his body along with the call. And if you'll notice, when Jesus says rise immediately, the man was whole. It wasn't waiting on him to react. He could not react until the Lord had done a work. And uh, God's not waiting on sinners to react. Sinners are not going to react. They're dead in trespasses and sins. But the grace of God is acting on sinners. And sinners are reacting to the grace of God. That's, that's how that works. So that salvation is not of any work of man, that anybody should boast in it, but it is the work of the grace of God. For by grace are you saved. So the man's made whole, and we read it the last part of verse 9. And the work, of course, is a wondrous work, but this discourse and really the trouble in the future of Jesus' life, what's going to bring... The, the hatred and the ire of the Pharisees on him is the last half of verse 9. On the same day was the Sabbath. So Jesus uh, uh, told this man, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And he took up his bed and in a sense he left the hospital. There at the pool of Bethesda, those porches, everybody that was there was sick. They had infirmity. They were in need. And so this man is healed by the Lord Jesus and he goes home from the hospital, if you'll have it that day, at the command of the Lord. So I'm going to read, and I realize we talked just a minute about this last time, but to get our thoughts together, let's start back verse 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. They asked him, what man is this which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. So they have an issue with this man carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. So we went back last time, and let's go back one more time. In Exodus chapter 20... As God is giving the law, and let's see what the actual law that God gave was. This is Exodus 20 and verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh. 
So the commandment of God was that there should be no work on the Sabbath day. And they're commanded to remember that, to keep it holy. Because how quickly... I mean, you, you just think about you as an individual and things in your life as, as they fade into the distance. Uh, just prayer, for instance. If prayer is holy to us and we, we try to seek after God every day, well, you start to slide out of the habit of that and, and it naturally, as that happens, it means less and less. And so the remembrance of this and the keeping of this was to keep the Sabbath day holy. Anywhere in that law that a man couldn't carry a bed on the Sabbath day. You see, man's interpretation of things, man puts more into the law and it's for man's reputation, for his holiness sake. But that was the law that God gave. That there be no work. Don't seek your enrichment. And he says, uh, Jesus is going to say, let's look in Mark chapter 2 first. And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that was with him? How that he went into the house of God during the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the shewbread which was not lawful to eat, but for the priests and gave also to them that were with him. He said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So here is another example out of the Old Testament. There was twelve cakes of shoe bread that was inside the holy place of the temple. It was not to be eaten by anybody other than the priests, and it was to only be eaten within the holy place. But here was David and his men. David, one of the men of God. He's fleeing from Saul. Saul is persecuting him. Him and his men are, they're hungry. They're in need. And they stop by and Abiathar the priest says, we don't have any bread here except for the shoe bread. It's not lawful for you to have it. But you know why that bread was there? It was there for the good of man. And so Jesus is applying that here to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath day to Israel that they would have a day that whether they liked it or not, they could rest. That whether they liked it or not, the servants could rest. God made a day in Israel that man couldn't work to the bone seven days a week and 24 hours a day. God made a day of rest for the good of mankind. God did not make man in order for there to be a Sabbath day. See, man gets it backwards. Man thinks it's just all about him. The Sabbath was given for the good of man. The Lord Jesus says as much. So here's a man that was healed on the Sabbath day. The Lord has done good for a man on the Sabbath day. Do you see any breaking of that and the law of God that was in Exodus? Did Jesus break the law in Exodus by healing this man? But boy, man's opinion said it did. 
you got to be very careful. Be very careful about what is your opinion and what is actually in the Word of God. You can make great error. You, you're allowed to have an opinion. You may have one. I may have one. And everybody in the church may have a different opinion. But don't say that that is the Word of God. Don't add to the Scripture. Don't take away from the Scripture. The Pharisees did that. We know what they were. So in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, this about Israel, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. Did the Jews have a desire to please God? They did. You know the problem? They didn't know who God was. They didn't know God. They didn't know His standard. They had made up a standard. In in Colossians, I'm sorry, one more place and we'll move on. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Man wants to make it a focus on touch not, taste not, do not, do. And man man has a way of twisting everything to being dependent on man. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. And so if, if you start mixing opinion and that desire to make it about me, when you get those two together, you see how there's going to be conflict everywhere you go. Because you want to do this, and I want to do this. Neither one of them is wrong with the Word of God. But because you're different than me, I'm going to hammer you and say it is the Word of God. And before long, you've got confusion, and you've got a mess. So be sure you're allowed to have your opinion. If you think that it's best, it's not contrary to the Word of God, then so be it. But just because you think it doesn't mean it's what everybody else is required to do. I mean, that's the truth. That's the truth. And so, he wist not who it was. So they said, who told you to carry your bed? They're interested in getting to the root of the problem. We've got a problem here. This man's carrying a bed on the Sabbath. He says somebody else told him. Who was it? We want to know who it was. He didn't know who he was. So you see what's going on. They ask him and he's looking around looking for Jesus. But he don't see him because Jesus had went away and he says, I I don't know who it was. But afterward, verse 14, Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So notice Jesus' commandment to him, you're, you're made whole, and that's that word uh, to generate. It is to become, to come into being. There's been a work done in you that has made you whole. 
I, I think that's obvious to see. And if, if you are able to say that you are free from sin, a child of God, you're, uh, uh, you've been brought into the family of God and you've got a home in heaven, then recognize this, you've been made that way. You weren't that way before, but a work of God was done that made you that way. It was God that did that. <clears throat> so he says, sin no more. Now this is an interesting... You don't see Jesus say this very often. So let's look in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. In Romans chapter 6, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? <clears throat> so Scripture, and there's piles of other Scripture, bears evident witness to the fact that someone who is redeemed, someone who is genuinely saved, their life is changed by that salvation. And I do believe it is as dramatic as a man that has palsy or is paralyzed and can't move, and the next moment that man is walking down the street carrying a bed. Now imagine this just for a second. If you broke your leg and it was a bad break and you had to wear a cast for six months, when they took that off, You've ever seen somebody that's had a cast for a long time and they take it off and the muscle's gone? I've seen arms where one forearm was much larger than the other because that's not been used. Here's a man that's laid there 38 years. What kind of muscle definition and strength do you reckon that man has? And in a moment he's up carrying a bed and walking down the highway. So a work of God. And when a work of God is done in salvation, the life is changed. It's unmistakable. The way we used to be, the way we are today. In the times past, it might have sufficed us to live that way. But now there's been a work of God done in the heart and we that are dead to sin can live no longer therein. But Jesus' warning is sin no more. So you know that, I, I believe this, that ought to be a sign. That if, if we think God has done a work in us to save us, we ought to be able to look at the manner of life, the behavior, the way that we live, and it ought to tell some story as to whether a genuine work of God has been done or not. If I can, I'm not saying I'm saved by my works, but I'm saying this, if I can go and live my old lifestyle 
and live how, how it pleases the flesh beforehand and can continue in that way, do you think that God's done a work in a man that way? Is it possible for a man to continue in sin after God has done a work in their life? So if we're able to live that same lifestyle, that ought to be a a witness to us of what we truly have. But he says, sin no more, lest a worse thing, worse than being in this shape for 38 years. Jesus said, or in Hebrews, the Bible says, how much sore punishment if the man that picked up sticks on the Sabbath day was stoned to death, how much sore punishment would be to those that do not come to the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 10 verse 28, Fear not them which are able to kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We'll look at more scripture later. In one place, Jesus says, If your eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's better to have life, enter into life with one eye, than to have two and be cast into hell. Same with the hand. The same with the leg. Is it better to live a whole life that's paralyzed and enter into life? You better believe it is. Because to to be cast into hell is worse than any physical condition that we can have in the flesh in this life. Whatever it is in this life, it's only temporary. But the next life is eternal. So lest a worse thing should come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus that made him whole. Now I can't determine in my head whether this was malicious or whether this man was just testifying to the Lord. I don't know which is which. My assumption would be he's going and bearing witness that this man Jesus is the one that cured me with no malicious intent whatsoever. But the Jews, they were malicious. When the Jews did persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he did these things on the Sabbath day. In John chapter 7, we'll look at this on down the line. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why do you go about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? They're dishonest, they're liars. They're covering up their true intention and true desire. And that's exactly the way man does today. Man despises, man hates, but he wants to cover it up. He doesn't want people to see. So they're after the Lord now to kill him because of these works on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal 
with God. So Jesus, His answer to this was, now remember the accusation. He's doing these works on the Sabbath day. Jesus' answer is, my Father worketh hitherto. He has worked up till this point, and I work. So He's making Himself, and the next verse says it, verse uh, 18 says it, He's made Himself equal with God. He is... Uh, claim to be the only begotten Son of God. So just for your information, the crowd that would say that Jesus was a wise man or a good man or a prophet, verses like these rule that completely out. Because Jesus Himself says that He's the Son of God. So that leaves us with two options. He's either, as he said he was, the Son of God, or he's a liar. He can't be a good man. He can't be a prophet and not be the Son of God. Because in the Old Testament, God tells us what a prophet of God looks like. Their word's going to be true. And God says, if what they say is not true, you'll know I've not sent them. So Jesus' claims here don't look that important, but really when you put the weight to them, He's either what He said He was, or He was a nothing. There's no in-between. There's no in-between ground. So my Father worketh hitherto. So we know that God said that He created the six days, and on the seventh He rested. So does that mean that God's really done nothing since the creation? Jesus says that His Father's been working. So I believe His Father must be working. In what means then in the world is God at work? See, man's got God setting apart and just watching over everything and seeing what man's going to do. That's not the father that Jesus described. This father was working. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Now words, this, that's Matthew 10, verse 29. Words are important there. Not without your father knowing. That word's not in there. Knowing is not there. But Jesus is implying there that God even has hand in the life and the death of the animals. Not one's going to fall to the earth without God being the doer of it. Again in Acts uh, chapter 14, He left not Himself without witness in that He did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food, and with gladness. So when there's a time of rain, it's not a drought, and there's fruitful seasons, we're not in a famine, where does that come from? God is the supplier even of the fruitfulness of the ground. That's what the Bible says. God has provided for us. God does provide 
for us. How much thankfulness does God get for what He's done? Very, very little. Even from our hearts a lot of times, honest. Because we don't realize that God's working hitherto. And so Acts 17 verse 28, For in Him we live, move, and have our being. It's in God that we are alive. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 6, there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. It's God that's at work. And the Father worked. Did He do that on the Sabbath day? Was He protecting life? Was He giving life on the Sabbath day? Was He killing on the Sabbath day? Was He causing it to rain on the Sabbath day? Does God have to live by the Sabbath day law? Does He? No, absolutely not. He doesn't. It's for me. It's not for God. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man. For the Sabbath. So the Father works, even on the Sabbath day, for the good of you and for the good of me. So in verse 19, now, this is going to be your response now to Jesus' claim that my Father worketh hitherto and I work. This is one long discourse. Um, We'll break it into pieces maybe. So verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He seeth the Father do. For what things soever He doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and sheweth Him all things that Himself doeth, and He will shew Him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. So, these words, I know that sounds, sounds foolish in some way maybe, but what he's saying is as the Father works, the Son works in the same means, in the same wheel, in the same way. They, they're not separate in their workings. God's not working to do this over here and Jesus is working to do this over here. They're working with one wheel one purpose, one goal, one, one work, if you'll have it. They are doing the same work. And the Father does not act without the Son, neither does the Son act without the Father. They are three entities, but they are one. The way it's said is they're three in person and one in essence. So the Father and the Son, they're doing the same work. What work are they doing? They're redeeming the elect. Is that not the goal of the Father? From before the foundation of the world, all of the words that man hates, He's predestinating, He's electing, and He's saving those that He saw fit to save. And the Son has come to work that work according to the will and the Word of God. 
So there's nothing contrary. There's no opposite. They don't have an argument. They don't have a crossword. They're not debating on what's going to be done next. They are one in will. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. In 1 John 5.7, there's three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. These three are one. So it was Jesus that gave His life on the cross. It was Jesus the individual. He done that according to the will of God the Father. It is the Holy Spirit. It is Him that comes to us and illuminates and draws us, but He does that according to the will of God the Father. And so really, Jesus was God's means of reconciling man to Himself. And the Spirit is God's means of applying that salvation to our lives in time. They're not separate. Christ's work fulfills the Father's will. They have one work, and they're both working towards it. So Jesus says, He shall shew him greater works than these. So we just had a man that was lame for 38 years that's been healed. Greater works than these. You've got the man born blind coming up in John. You've got Lazarus, dead four days, raised from the grave. But the greatest work that's going to be seen now, Jesus is going to be killed and He's going to raise Himself from the dead. Now in comparison, as you go down the line of works that John is going to present as he gives his case for who the Lord Jesus is, is there any greater proof I mean, really, a paralyzed man being able to walk again is nothing in comparison to a man raising himself from the dead. So, um, in verse 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. For the Father, the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which is sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So as the Father raises the dead, so also the Son. In Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. So as the Father's will is, so is the Son's will. As the Father kills and make alive, the Son kills and makes alive. But remember this now. We're getting this as Jesus is giving discourse to man. 
But really what's, what it is is they're one. They are one in the same in work and in essence. So in Acts 26, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? You can read in Romans that Abraham, when he was told to offer his son, he regarded that God was able to raise him from the dead. Is it an incredible thing to think that God can raise the dead? Is that unheard of? No. So as the Father does, so does the Son. We've got much evidence of Jesus raising the natural dead while He was on the face of the earth. But the work that's mentioned here, what He's focusing on here, and we'll see the dead being raised in just a few verses, is that they are together as one. You can't honor the Father without honoring the Son. You can't honor the Son without honoring the Father. They, they're not separate in any way. You cannot, and here the, the deceitfulness of our world that says all roads do lead to heaven. And you can come and worship God any way that you like. That can't be the truth. Jesus and the Father cannot be separated from one another. And outside of Jesus, you're not honoring the Father. And if you come to the Father, you come to Jesus also. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Not because the Baptist said so either. It was Jesus Himself who was of the Father, who was equal with the Father that said so. For the Father judges no man. Now that can be, that can be hard to swallow. But the Father has given judgment to the Son. So the Father, I believe you could say it like this, the Father is not judging any man without the Son. The Father's not raising man without the Son. The Father's not judging without the Son. The Son's not raising without the Father. And the Son's not judging without the Father. We're establishing a oneness between Jesus Christ, the man, and God the Father, Jehovah, in heaven. So in John 17, 2, As thou hast given him, God has given Jesus, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice, now this is the high priestly prayer in John 17. Notice what Jesus says. The Father's given Jesus power over all flesh that Jesus should give eternal life to those that thou hast given him. So the Father has given Jesus a number and given Him the power to raise them from the dead. Jesus is not acting on His own accord without the Father. Neither is the Father acting of His own accord without the Son. For God shall bring every work into judgment 
with every secret thing, whether it be good or bad. Matthew 11, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Father but the Son, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Again in Acts, Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So Jesus is the man, obviously, and God is the one that's going to judge the world in righteousness by that man. So it's not that the Father's got no part in it, but they are one in it. Just as God reconciled the world to Himself in Jesus Christ, God is going to judge the world. I'm not adding things to the Scripture. This is Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He will judge the world by that man whom He hath ordained. So God and the Son, they're working as one. And just as one as the Father and the Son are, the Spirit is one with them also. They are working for the same work and the same will. So just like in creation, God created all things by His Word. He spoke it into existence. And we know the Word being Jesus, all things were made by Him and for Him. So just like with creation, the Father and the Son are one in all of their works. The Word does not act separate from. So that all should honor the Son. In John 15, and you talk about saying it as plain as it can be said, He that hateth me hateth my Father also. Can a man that does not believe in Jesus love God in his own way? There is, it is impossible by the Word of God. It is impossible for that to be the case. Cannot happen. Jesus is the way for all men, all races, all religions, all creeds, for all the world. He is the way. So he that heareth and believeth, he says in 24, hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation. So first of all, there is a hearing and believing. Now we already recognize in context with everything else that we've seen, how is it that a man hears and believes? By the work and persuasion of the Holy Spirit of God. And without hearing and without believing, we are not in Christ Jesus. This is a requirement. It's not a head knowledge. It's not a think so. It's not a I grew up in it. 
It's not a I go to church thing. It is a requirement that we hear and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. Hath everlasting life, never ending. How can you have, and just you can answer all kinds of doctrine with just this discourse. How can you have a salvation that you can sin out of, that you can lose and have to repent and get back? How can you have that if it's eternal? If at the point of hearing and believing in Jesus, I'm given eternal life, then how can I lose it? If I lose it, it wasn't eternal. And I realize that's elementary, but some things you just don't know whether you ought to say them again or not, so we just say them again. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. So if God has given eternal life, and God has said that they shall not, that is an absolute negative, no, never. They shall no, never come into condemnation. We're talking about a, a freedom from condemnation, a freedom from judgment. If God's the judge, and if God has justified, then who's going to overrule God? Is there any way that man can lose this salvation that God has given unto His church? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Who by Him do believe in God that raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, that your hope might be in God. Where is the hope of the church and the redeemed? You think now, if it was in your individual and personal work that you hoped in, if it was in your day-to-day life, today may be a wonderful day. You may have great hope and feel real good. But the day's coming where there's going to be sin and there's going to be a fall. And then where does that leave us when, when we fall? If hope's in you, then you're out of hope then. But you see, the church's salvation is anchored in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in God and not in me. It's in what Jesus has done and not in what I've done so that it's unchangeable. It can't be lost. I can't sin out of it because it's not dependent on me. The Lord came and the Lord lived perfectly. And the Lord gave His life for my sins. And so in Him, I have no condemnation. None. And I'm not worried about coming into it later either. Now if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have that. But those in Jesus have no condemnation. who by Him do believe in God and gave Him glory, that your hope, your expectation, 
is in God. So it's the only thing I've got to worry about is do I think God's going to keep His Word? Anybody doubt whether God's going to keep His Word or not? Then friends, I am in Christ as secure as God's Word. Can't be undone. Now the devil wants to waller man slap to death. He'd like to bring man under condemnation. He'd like you to waller in doubt and in dread. But in Jesus Christ, God's given the church something that cannot be taken away. That's not liberty for me to live how I want to either. The false accusers, they can just eat that. That's all I know. Because in Christ there's a new life that's made. But I tell you, in Christ there's a secure salvation and I will not ever enter into condemnation. That is the Word of God. Now ain't it a shame that people wince at you saying that? Because we need to wield the power of condemnation to keep people in line with what we say. That's the way it works. You pay attention. That's the way it works a lot of times. But in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There can't be. If there is, then he, He's lied to us here. But is passed from death unto life. So that word passed, it's to translate, to change places is really what it means. So those that are in Jesus, they have changed places. They were dead, and now they're alive. So in Ephesians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. So there was a time that the church was dead. We've already looked at other Scripture There was a time that we were in sin. There was a time that we were under condemnation. There was a time that we were guilty. But because of this work of God, we changed from that place and brought into a new place. You can look at pictures of that. You can look at orphan children adopted into the family of God. You can look at children that were not being born into the children of God. You can see translation from the kingdom of darkness of the devil into the kingdom of the dear son. You can see this picture here, people that were dead and now they're alive again. So this work of God, this salvation is by Jesus account a resurrection which is exactly what we're about to get into in Revelation 20 you've got the great white throne judgment in that chapter we're all familiar with that chapter it's also the chapter where the millennium comes from the idea of a millennial reign but what you're going to see if you'll read that chapter you're going to see two resurrections you're going to see a people that take part in a first resurrection, the second death has no power. You're going to see another resurrection later where all the dead, small and great, are brought up and they stand before God. That chapter, those two resurrections, and what we're about to read here in John, are they're tied 
identically together. So we would like to take both of those chapters, Revelation 20 and this here, bring them together and maybe we can see exactly what's being said. Same writer, John wrote the Gospel of John. John wrote Revelation. So in verse 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. He hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And we don't have time to dig into this today and we'll just wait till next time. But notice in that scripture, you've got a resurrection first. That's not everybody. He says, the dead shall hear the voice and they that hear shall live. So that's not all of them. And then later on, you've got all that are in the graves shall hear. And they're all going to get up. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting destruction. So I know it, in Revelation 20 you've got a lot of metaphor there, but there is the two resurrections together. There is one, and we're in the first resurrection right now. If you're saved, you've had part in the first resurrection and the second death, the great white throne judgment, the condemnation of the works, and being cast into a lake of fire, I'll have no part in the second death. So I've had part in the first resurrection. But in the last resurrection, the one we all know about, we want to hear about it on... Uh, homecoming day, we want to hear about it when we lose a loved one, that great resurrection day. When God comes back and all that are in the graves are going to come up. So that's what you're seeing in Revelation 20. And that's what John is talking about here. And next time we'll try to dig into that and look at it. Anything on